Hello, everyone. I am off this week, so Jahed was gracious enough to go solo in our interview with Dermot Arirden. Dermot is a partner at Eden Block, which is a research-led European venture capital firm investing in Web3 infrastructure and emerging crypto networks. This week's interview begins a series of episodes over the coming months that will feature investors that are seeding the ownership economy. If you like this episode, we recommend going back and hearing from Julia Lipton in episode 21 as well from two weeks ago. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hey, Dermot. Thanks for joining us today, man. Much appreciated. Hey, dude. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so I think, you know, we like to start this thing off by really asking our guests about their origin story, how they got to where they are today. That doesn't have to include crypto. So maybe you can walk us through that. Where did the story of Dermot start? <laughs> what a nice question, or at least how you framed it. Yeah, sure. So I guess kind of my kind of career has had many different pit stops along the way, but actually, I guess kind of the three things that kind of probably kind of bring it all together are kind of one is the idea that technology is a force for good. I think I'm an internal optimist and I've always viewed technology as a tool that can be leveraged to kind of create good in the world. Ultimately, it's immoral, but I think in the right hands, it can be used for, for good for sure. And that's, I guess, kind of what's kind of uh, I've done throughout my kind of career. Secondly, I guess the idea of community and how that ultimately sustains technology and kind of humanizes it and brings it together. And then the third part really is kind of just the idea of what investment and how that can supercharge this technology and the communities around them. And so, yeah, quickly on a kind of a, a kind of whistle stop tour, I guess, I, my career started off as a lawyer, actually. So I was like, um, as you kind of may hear from the accent of a name, I'm uh, originally from Ireland, kind of went to school and university in Dublin. But kind of the conservative Irish system kind of sent me down the road of becoming a lawyer because I was kind of good at school and despite kind of competing in some national kind of maths competitions, I was scared of needles. So I was never going to be a doctor. And then they're like, okay, cool. You should uh, probably study law, even though I never really wanted to be a uh, a lawyer and again it was like kind of tech that was kind of uh, exciting me um but ultimately after kind of doing a law degree and all these law firms kind of selling me hey you're interested in tech and you're good at maths all this kind of stuff come join us we do all this kind of cool stuff so i, I did and i kind of uh first kind of job was actually at hogan levels kind of a big international law firm in london but actually interesting just touching on the idea of this community before moving to london in 2012 i had six months quite fortunately with the web summit which is now the kind of the world's largest technology conference I kind of joined as number five or six, just uh, there kind of the start of 2012. I kind of left six months later. There were 60 people that helped them run their kind of biggest and most important event in New York, kind of partnered with NASDAQ and Goldman Sachs around the idea of bringing together kind of the 100 teams we viewed as most likely to kind of become major unicorns and kind of IPO before the end of the decade. And I think, honestly, almost probably half of that cohort, like from Twilio, Uber, et cetera, became major companies, which is pretty exciting and kind of actually kind of where I guess met a lot of early people playing around at the fringes of tech from kind of Bitcoin and crypto and all this kind of fun stuff. And so I guess I trained as a lawyer ultimately, I decided not to stay at the Web Summit and for, for better or for worse, but while kind of designing kind of traditional kind of governance schemes around venture, private equity, kind of M&A, big ticket, kind of hundreds, billions of dollars, really what pulled me back in and I guess really kind of the light bulb moment for me at crypto was in 2016 with the rise of the Dow that was kind of the moment of oh fuck okay this is mental this is like obviously ridiculous it seems hopelessly naive but here I am kind of designing these kind of very effective incentive schemes that kind of coordinate a very narrow group of stakeholders but actually it's, it's very limited and the idea that you just kind of spin up a smart contract and kind of aggregate capital from all over the world and kind of very frictionless manner and you're all going to vote on investing in the startups so it's like this is mental but i want to be part of this so it really kind of pulled me closer to kind of the ideals of crypto and what's happening at ethereum and DAOs. and the next law firm i was at was actually more technology focused i joined in early 2017 again quite fortunate timing with the kind of the rise of token investments and icos auric were kind of deep in kind of silicon valley incorporated facebook the US partners are keen to find someone else in Europe who could support them as people, you know, top founders backed by kind of tier one VCs were like, hey, we want to show a token now to the world and raise loads of money. And people are like, right. whoa, whoa, whoa. And an aura could actually develop the safe for Y Combinator. So it was an actual port of call um, to kind of come help and lead on a lot of this stuff. But obviously, nobody really knew what was going on. So I was kind of asked to help build out the kind of European kind of blockchain practice. And that was honestly, really cool. yeah, crazy as well, right? So I kind of had a crazy 18 months seeing the kind of the good, the bad and the ugly, I guess, advocating to regulators to calm down. <laughs> There's some real good here, holding kind of founders' hands, kind of keeping them out of jail, as well as kind of having FOMOing investors who are just willing to throw in 10 to $15 million and kind of want some kind of institution to sort of sign off and say, this is somewhat legit, even though that's not what I'm paid for and you guys can't sue us, but sure, I'll review this white paper and 
<laughs> issue spot and maybe do some desktop kind of diligence. But I guess really where that brought me to was I joined one of my early clients who had the thesis that if you wish to a token, you're a public company. And there was a clear realization in trade 2017. And we saw that onwards that nobody was really acting like a public company. And so there's a lot of really smart technical teams, but actually they'd often never scaled a team. They hadn't really thought deeply about governance, community, even the economics of the system they're building. So actually the guy who brought me in as number two, his kind of uh, he just brought in people who'd kind of worked in scaling startups and worked in VC, finance, law, et cetera. And there's five of us in total. And we're investing small checks, roughly 100K. So having skin in the game and the teams are supporting, but ultimately just kind of filling the gaps of where they weren't thriving or just had no experience in. So that was kind of brilliant. That took me through kind of 2018 and 2019. And we ran different meetups across London and every other city that we're part of just kind of bringing the community together and just trying to raise the standard of discourse, really, because I think you probably remember if you're doing anything in the space, there's just a lot of just mental of, hey, we're issuing this ICO, come just oh, throw yeah. your money into the smart contract. I was definitely around during that ICO <laughs> as well. And I remember a lot of people were basically just saying, you know, we're doing this thing that uh, that Vitalik wrote up on his blog. <laughs> right? Like, it's right here. This like one theory paper from a think boy on the internet <laughs> that materialized. So it's interesting that you came to this from law and then, and now you're at Eden Block. How did you end up there? Yeah, I guess one of, one of the things, as I kind of mentioned at the reserve, while I guess investing and advising, we ultimately realized the importance of community and bringing people together. And one of the things I did throughout 2019, I partnered with a professor at uh, University College London. He was super technical. He was actually the chief scientist of Brave Browser at the time. And we would partner to kind of review new L1s, kind of DeFi protocols like Maker, Compound, even Dharma back then. And kind of, I'd be the more commercial side of it, he'd be the more technical side of it. We would have everything from 20 to 50 people, but like just kind of, again, trying to raise the standard of conversation and moving away from just talking about you know, token prices and all that kind of stuff. And he was a venture partner at Eden Block. And towards the 2019, I guess the story with the, the reserve, that company I was at, the investment firm, ultimately we ran out of our own capital and all the additional upside we're getting in the teams were supporting throughout the bear market. They were either trending towards zero or else kind of were completely illiquid, despite having some great teams. We had no more capital to keep doing what we're doing. So we kind of decided to to move on and go our separate ways. Two of the team actually left the space. I definitely wanted to stay in. And I guess kind of a realization for me is that I didn't need to be the striker on the pitch scoring all the goals. So I kind of realized I didn't need to start something myself, at least yet. So I kind of, I love supporting people, helping people, being that kind of leverage where possible. I realized VC, you combine capital with the advisory side, it's, it's kind of a dream job. The issue being there's probably about less than 20 firms globally <laughs> deploying into uh, crypto right. at the time. But I got lucky with Eden Block we kind of met at the right time. They were kind of scaling up. I'd made some good investments at the likes of Neman Vega. And they really wanted to revamp that thesis and kind of their approach to how they support their founders. And it kind of came at a good time, I guess, as kind of really 2020 onwards has kind of been really about the time of moving from concept to adoption in crypto. I think everything up till then was just kind of theory and raising yeah. some capital and funding R&D, but uh, no real kind of users. So, uh, yeah, I, I agree. Are. I agree with that definitely for the most part. Like, this and I still think we're pretty far from that when you look at the daily usage numbers of anything other than like Ethereum or Uniswap. <laughs> right. Like when you get really into it, you're like compared to even like web two tech, right? But that's interesting. You've been active for quite a while in this space. And you know, I noticed I've read quite a bit of what you've written and you're definitely immersed in the ethos and the jargon of what's going on here, right? You know, you, I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just like, we are relentless on this podcast about jargon with every person mm. that comes on here. Because, you know, I'm even one of the worst offenders, right? Martin will be like, hey, well, what does that mean? Deconstruct that three-letter thing you keep throwing around here, right? Which is totally fair, right? Because part of adoption is not just the tools and driving technology adoption. It's literally the linguistic and intersubjective structures that we're building here and where they mean something <laughs> to anyone other than us, right? So, but anyway, one of the things that really struck me in a lot of what you write is I feel like you get at a very honest de depiction of what mm. some people are calling the ownership economy, right? Because for me, I feel like a lot of the stuff, and we rail against this relentlessly here, is that people say, oh yeah, crypto is opening up ownership structures to more people and it's democratizing this, that, and the other, but then you go and look at the wallets and the, and then it's really just a couple of whales and a long tail of people holding, you know, whatever, kind of the, the same amount as things that ended up being. And then people say, hey, well, we've set aside 50% of our cap table for the community, but it's the community is this, you know, sort of 
ephemeral thing that's off <laughs> ethereal thing somewhere over there right it exists but it doesn't right they'll hold it in the future at some point i swear but what i found really interesting was this you know we have this idea of the ownership economy where these ownership structures will be more broadly accessible democratic governance will ride along with that and hopefully we go to better places as a society at virtual or, or in, in you know in certain circles of society right <laughs> But you've also been writing an Eden block of investing in this idea of the new open internet, right? And that's combining stuff like the future of finance, institutional adoption, digital communities. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what is this new open internet? What is this idea behind what you guys are investing in? Yeah, sure. I realize we all have this kind of jargon. And I think it's, a, it's definitely important to unpack and double click on what we all mean. I guess very much core to kind of how we think of Eden block is actually what we're in the midst of is actually a cultural revolution that's enabled by technology and that technology being blockchain. I think um, they, a lot of these trends have been happening for the last 30 years, I guess, starting with the internet, but actually there's a kind of a great book and kind of article by, I think it's uh, yeah Jeremy Hyman's and uh, Henry Timms who kind of talk about this idea of new power. And we very much believe that we're moving kind of from an age of like old power values where actually kind of the kind of the way you kind of dominated and had power was connected to kind of proprietary control over information and resources. With the rise of the internet, we're kind of moving to an age of those who have power, at least theoretically speaking, should be those who can actually harness the kind of the power of the crowd and bring that with them. And so kind of the new power values, as you kind of touched upon, are all about kind of sharing, collaborating, co-owning and so forth. And that's really important. But it is, as you said, we're not there yet. It's, it's obviously messy. I think we have a lot of short term thinking, but that's kind of the ideal we're getting towards. And I guess I can maybe impact a little bit that kind of that kind of quick whistle-stop tour of kind of the internet now where we've got to, if, if, if you'd like to, but um, otherwise I'm going to dive please. into some more of the specific use cases. Okay, yeah, sure. Um, I guess yeah. it's a little bit hackneyed sometimes, so please just kind of call me up on my bullshit as well. But it's kind of the, uh, the idea, of course, in the 1990s, we had that era of kind of free intellectual capital and open access. In some ways, free everything kind of broke the humanity of the economics. We no longer kind of understood where we're getting things from. We broke the relationship with end users. And we kind of see that in some of the time in terms of kind of the discord between, say, of course, there's news and music, but also then there's also kind of relationship to Uber drivers and Deliveroo and so on and so forth. And other kind of problems per se or kind of new issues brought about by the internet was kind of just the information overload. Over overload. Our, uh, our monkey brains just can't process all these choices. So kind of the power again moved from the producers to actually those who kind of create all of this information for us and kind of we're now ending up in this place where we have these AI overlords, so to speak, to again paint in broad brush strokes who kind of monopolize our data and attention, I guess. And really kind of the idea of the new open internet is being able to crack open these centers of power to kind of humanize it to many respects and kind of give a lot of kind of power and agency back to kind of the users and kind of producers within these kind of platforms and the communities that form around them. Got it. And so like for us, you know, that seems like a very similar thesis to the way that we're thinking about the ownership economy, though I'll say haven't stood up a fund that backs it completely yet, but <laughs> something we've been thinking about. But so then, you know, digging a bit deeper <laughs> into this, right? The You wrote a great piece that I very much enjoyed reading that was digging into a specific example of what this kind of ownable internet would look like, right? What an open economy on the internet would look like. So I think that this piece was on Pocket Network and we I dug into Pocket Network quite a bit, but maybe you could explicate the thesis further by kind of just saying, you know, walking us through what you guys thought of Pocket Network and why you invested in it. Yeah, great question. And I guess there's definitely a point to say about kind of the idea of the new open internet that it's ultimately the new business models connected to crypto actually and the kind of the trustless kind of i guess trying to avoid jargon as well but like substrate ultimately of a blockchain that we can all a single source of tr truth that we can all trust is kind of enabling whole new types of businesses and but pocket network for sure is one of those and i guess going back to kind of why we kind of invest into pocket network kind of looking at the period of may june 2020 when we made the investment i think we're kind of starting to see kind of the start of DeFi summer and actually that means kind of traction starting to grow again people are getting excited there's kind of capital kind of forming usage is obviously spiking and that brings it with its own problems right so i think around a similar time in pura which actually at the time was kind of the primary node service for pretty much everything on ethereum 
goes down a couple of times and people kind of joke that oh ethereum's turned off or kind of it's not working and <laughs> really call the ceo of ethereum get this thing back up <laughs> yeah i think and also sorry to cut you off but i think you know i jumped right in the pocket network you know one thing for folks who have no idea right is i think maybe to frame this in another way is that one of the reasons why investors are so into stuff like aws and so many are and are so into you know the competitors that are in that space, GCP, DigitalOcean, all that kind of stuff is that you basically, once you stand something like this up where essentially you're a cloud provider of some service, doesn't have to be you know, a node service, anything, but when you're providing a service like this on the internet that can be rented, you are basically a tax on all of the economic activity that's happening on the internet in perpetuity, right? And then, you know, once you know, then then other things kind of materialize around this, like uh, Cloudflare, for instance, right? A few years ago, Cloudflare got uh, got embroiled in a censorship thing with I I mean, and it's happened a number of times, right? But they're essentially providing DDoS protection for a bunch of sites on on the internet, and then see, someone came to them and said, hey, there are all these like shitty websites or sanctioned websites that are on your thing and then you know there are web two companies they're like whatever we'll just take them down right or we'll or we'll fire them right and so like this is the non-ownable non-open you know walled garden closure of the commons if you will internet right and then that's why sorry this is me just catching everyone up pocket is one of the few types the few you know candidates in this new internet you mentioned Infura, which you know is kind of centralized, and uh, you know there's Alchemy and a number of others that are all kind of this AWS-ish type business where they, you know, they're operating on the same model. But Pocket is different, right? And that's why, and that's kind of what I want to dig into. Yeah, for sure. I think you, yeah, and thank you for framing that. I think the kind of the the options if you're building a kind of a, a blockchain application is you obviously run your own nodes, incur the kind of infrastructure costs, coordination costs that come with that, or you kind of connect to an API like Infura or Alchemy, et cetera. And it's kind of a no-brainer. Like it's hard enough bring a startup to have to run your own nodes and like janky node software, all that kind of stuff as well. And of course, that just brings a single source of failure. That goes down. So does your app and everything else. And then there's kind of potential privacy issues, the censorship issues that we haven't quite seen yet, but actually I think we have uh, more recently. I think um, was it Infura or MetaMask was asked to stop, actually Infura was asked to stop serving um, I think IP addresses in certain kind of banned countries. I think it was Venezuela and otherwise. Wow. I did not know that. Terrible. Yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of, again, you're kind of putting your hands or the power or relying on something which you can't necessarily trust. And then against the other kind of interesting part of it is to this point is kind of just, it's actually in the kind of, I think it's in the Ethereum white paper, actually in the early kind of forum posts, people talk about it's like relaying data is just basically taking data from the blockchain, your balance, whatever it is, and sending it to the application. There's no incentivization for that. So people assume that those already running nodes for validating purposes or otherwise would just help out and kind of altruistically uh, sort this. So kind of Pocket actually provided an incentive to actually relay that data and kind of bring it back to whoever wanted it. But the interesting thing is this is ultimately kind of a commodity market um, and it's the kind of the lowest cost producer wins. And by not owning your own um, resources and infrastructure, Pocket by kind of coordinating a global network of nodes from I think, I don't know, 30, 40 countries plus, I think it's 36,000 nodes. These people, a lot of them are running nodes already for the different blockchains they care about and Pocket supports 45 blockchains. And for them, the Pocket node itself is actually really lightweight and that's actually just sending you work. You kind of stake in the network. You say, hey, I've got some blockchain nodes that um, relay data for this blockchain. You send me some work, you get paid. And it's um, really powerful because they're bootstrapped out of essentially nothing into this global network that's supporting more blockchains than any of the centralized providers at a much cheaper cost. And so I guess the thesis for bringing it back is going back to that problem and the market and the importance, but maybe an, an area that actually is worth touching on is also you know, the realization that we can actually back them is because they actually had the right values as well. And that was actually kind of down to the founder at the time who crazily, I guess at this time in 2020, nobody was uh, assuming that they were the <laughs> nobody was assuming this was an important area. This is deeply unsexy, as Very you're saying. Interesting. Yeah, and and yeah. Sorry, go ahead. You're gonna jump in. Oh no, I think that that's a really interesting spot actually that you brought up because basically, you know, when you dig into what Pocket actually has done with the provision of uh, data availability, nodes, all that kind of stuff that they're working on, is it's a great argument for me kind of ideologically because what they've actually done is built a market around this in a lot of ways right like they they have built a truly functioning market 
so that, you know, when you look at it from the outside, let's say you mentioned the blockchain developers perspective, right? Someone who just wants to build a decentralized app because there are users on Ethereum or any other you know, pocket or uh, Polkadot or what have you, and they don't want to get subsumed in all the infrastructure stuff. This is exactly the situation that, you know, say circa 2006, when AWS came online, people were like, well, God, it's so hard to launch an internet business. I've got to go buy some servers. I've got bare metal. I've got, a, I've got to hire a .NET developer to manage all this stuff. Just so my internet business can do things. And then that was an opportunity for Amazon to basically build a nice enclosed walled garden and rent it out and solve a real customer problem, right? Like, great. But now, you know, the, the opportunity, I feel like, has always been there for someone to actually build a functioning market like instead of actually a bunch of, you know, people look at it from the outside and go, well, there's three providers. What do you want? <laughs> it's like, well, actually, they're hideously inefficient because behind this, you know, sort of cozy and wall of contracts between one, and one another where you can't actually see behind it. What are the actual transaction costs behind there? They're being, don't worry, pay this line item on your invoice, right? There's a, that sort of efficiency breaks down. We just assume that's the best way to do it. Whereas, you know, maybe there's another way to do it. And so I think coming back around to this, you touched briefly on your piece in Pocket Network about there being a potential for a regenerative economy of public goods, right? And so we're getting into a little bit more jargon, but we literally just came out of two episodes where we talked about refi and regenerative mm -hmm. finance. So I feel like we've a little bit, if you've been following me, set the stage. So what I found most interesting about this part is that if you compare the business models of the way that we're heading with the you know 99.7% of the internet activity that is not blockchain is, you know, you can call it the standard business model. There's a you're going to be paying rent forever. Some people might call it extractive, whatever. I don't want to get into the, the politics of it, but having the ability to make this a public good was very interesting to me. Can you dig into that a little bit more? Because I am very interested in this burgeoning space that pops up between public and private that people are kind of calling the commons and reestablishing that from the perspective of an investor, right? And so if I come mm. back around to you and say, well, what is the actual question? Because I spoke a lot there. <laughs> How do you actually see Pocket Network becoming an exemplar of this regenerative economy of public goods? Yeah. And again, I guess kind of there's something that is interesting because I guess we use public goods a lot and the idea of Web3 and actually you kind of go back to the economic terms and the ideas of exclusionary and kind of rivalrousness, not all, I mean, pretty much most crypto platforms aren't actually public goods in the true sense or in their kind of old school explicit sense, but actually when you think about what we're able to build, that just wasn't possible before. They're kind of a new version of these kind of, I think what economists call club goods, where usually you have to pay something to access, but by your use of them, you're not actually using that up for anyone else. I think a pocket is a good example of that. Actually, they're building something that just wouldn't, wouldn't otherwise be possible, but because it's an open and permissionless platform, you can actually contribute to that network. You can kind of, if you own your node infrastructure, you can contribute, you can earn rewards, you can earn governance, you can earn, you can earn upside. And similarly, as an application, actually, the way Pockets economics work is quite interesting. You essentially buy throughput my bandwidth. You say, okay, I've got 100 million relays a day. I can buy that. But actually, that's kind of like a commodity. And actually, if you decide you don't no longer need that or not, don't need to use all of that, you can sell that back to the network. You essentially buy it up front. It doesn't actually really diminish, so to speak. You're buying a right to the network, which is quite interesting. That is quite interesting. Yeah, it's basically like, you know, when you talk about abstractions behind the, uh, you know, the transaction costs of the firm, that's just a thing that no one cares about. Like if you looked at, you know, if you looked at AWS, there's probably a hundred people who are on that team who are like, do we have enough capacity? What do we have to, what do we have to spin up? What physical infrastructure do we have to provide? But they're not looking at it from the perspective of efficient market. They're looking at it from the perspective of uptime and making sure our customers are happy and that we can service this and our growth based on our internal models, probably. Right. So basically what I'm, what I heard, and maybe you tell me if I'm wrong here is this gives you an opportunity to build a more efficient market around compute usage and various other use cases that pocket is building. Is that right? Yeah, 100%. It's kind of providing us this with unstoppable access to, I guess, a fundamental resource, which I think, I guess we all agree is is blockchain data. That's kind of, if you agree on the importance of blockchains, access to that is fundamental. And we are able to kind of provide this at a sustainable, I guess, a sustainable kind of business model approach. 
that is potentially at the at the lowest possible cost. I guess that is, is the biggest point there. And I guess maybe maybe one or two other points just on the idea of kind of these new form of types of public goods that we're kind of being able to kind of create with crypto. I guess just with these new incentives for collaboration, we're just completely changing and enabling whole new types of businesses. Another one being one of our portfolio companies, Jensen. They kind of talk about this a lot. They're building a protocol that enables anyone who has again compute but to provide it to their network but this time for deep learning models and interestingly in the world of deep learning there's just no incentive for those kind of building these kind of foundational training models which have the potential to advance these models for other people basically essentially you're talking about sharing their learnings there's no really incentive to do that going back to that kind of business model you extract everything for yourself or you kind of open source way kind of do it at the goodness of your heart but you, there's no way for you to get be incentivized or get upside from your collaboration and support. So that's something that I think Pocket's able to do, Jensen's able to do, and as a whole, um, and that ultimately is a public good because you're providing a resource that people may otherwise not be able to kind of actually access. And fine, you might have to pay something for it, but it's never going to be at an extractive level, which is super important. Cool. And I think we sort of backed into what I was really curious about, which is how do you as a VC think about investing in public goods, right? Like when someone comes to you and says, honestly, this happens to me a lot. When people come out and say like, hey, I think this is a public good. And it's like, I often end up in a space where I go, I can't tell if this is a business or a charity, right? And so I'm like, <laughs> or, you know, or whether it should be one or the other, right? So how do you think about that when people come to you and say, Hey, this could be a public good, and that, and there, and you should also get in the car and fund this thing, right? What are the things that you kind of think of are investable as public goods? Yeah, the good question. I think at least the way we think about it, because we're that mission to back the builders of the new open internet. Anyone building decentralized protocol, we largely view most of them are ultimately going to be some form of public goods, whether it's named for network level privacy or anything else like that. So, I guess I'm going back to one of the other things I said. The idea that free everything broke the kind of economics of the internet and kind of the economics more broadly in commerce. We do think it's obviously necessary to have some kind of incentives to sustain these platforms. But actually by kind of bringing in more stakeholders, by bringing in the end users, bringing in the producers, we can hopefully produce that kind of good or output in a way that's much more sustainable, much better cost, but people still get rewarded. And by bootstrapping that network, and I guess as a VC being long-term selfish, understanding that if you build some transformative platform that can provide data for every single app blockchain application in the world across every blockchain application, even a tiny sliver of that upside and stake and those incentives, that's going to be incredibly rewarding. So um, I think that's definitely one of the key ways we think about it. But it's, it is interesting for sure. I think a lot of the Web3 space in general is about sort of you got to think long term and you basically got to back smart people and solving problems. And the business model isn't always fundamentally clear, but actually really, I guess, where we kind of play around with the infrastructure, if you're solving a problem and people need to do work, they need to get paid for it. So there's going to be some upside ultimately. Cool. And then you mentioned a couple of things like decentralization. Is there anything that you folks think of maybe you could you know, explicate a bit further in terms of like quantification, right? So like, I'll give you an example. There was a, this lovely lawsuit that was filed this week, I think this week or last week, right? Against Solana. I don't know if you heard about this, right? But no, uh, have uh, Interesting. It was, it was filed against the Solana founders, Multicoin Capital, and a couple other big whales in Solana, alleging that 48% of the network is owned by them. Therefore, it's not sufficiently decentralized. And then they're making a bunch of allegations about, you know, insider this and that. But you know, that's we don't need to speculate in search trading whether or not this is right. It's more about the mm. fact that if you're sitting on the VC side of the table, like I am, and someone comes in and says, "Hey, we have this," you know, like a, a cash network, for instance, we take like a like a neutral case, right? Someone the cash network comes to you today and says, "We're doing, we're decentralizing AWS." As a VC, do you think is there anything that you folks have apply to say like, okay, they want to make this public good, they want to do X, Y, and Z? How do we know that this can both be a Ven of investable and a public good? Yeah, really interesting. I think it, a lot of it, and actually that's the kind of when we're investing as early as we do, which is aiming to be kind of first institutional check, it really goes down to the core values of those founders. And I mean, I don't, I'm not here to shit on Solana, but I mean, we've heard there's obviously been rumors or strange things about Solana or in terms of disclosures. Right. And I'm cutting definitely a sidebar, but I actually think 99% of the problems in crypto could be solved with really strong conflicts of interest rules and disclosures. So like insider trading, all of that kind of stuff. 
But to go back to kind of your point on how it's investable, it has to be the team. They have to be willing to kind of really grow that size of the pie and not be, if you think, I mean, you look at basic things like founder allocations, they've kind of awarded themselves 40% of the pie. They've got short-term kind of uh, vesting schedules and just really digging into, and that's what excites me actually in our job as VCs is actually, yes, they're building technology and they have to build that, but actually really we think about who can actually become a leader of this open source community. And that's kind of the traits of how will they bring people in? Are they willing to bring people in? How transparent are they likely to be as well? Got it. No, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, who are they? Why are they doing this? And what distinct, discrete, actual ways have they shown that they'll be willing to do that? And one big way to tip you off is uh, 30 to 40% set aside for the team investing within two years, huh? <laughs> something like that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if we have actually invested into any team that's had a vesting schedule less than three or four years. Um, I mean, that's more of an aside and we're a 10-year fund, so we're able to do that. But I think it's, it is super important. And these incentives matter. I think yeah. it's just one of the things that is holding back the space is kind of a lack of long-term incentives, right? Just people not yeah. really, they get kind of uh, see the bright lights and get distracted and kind of making sure that you're backing the right people and giving capital to the right people is super important. So yeah, it's definitely something we think about a lot. So as a VC, for sure, it's the market and the product, but it has to be the right team. It has to be the right incentives. And are they advancing yeah, that, that mission? Makes a lot of sense. It does because I think you know. Uh, yesterday, I was on a deal call with the person I you know won't name, but this person was like, uh, we both sort of almost completed each other's sentence. Where I was like, looking at the person who was building, it was essentially one of the dozens of uh, distributed compute or distributed energy management and energy distribution platform ideas, and so. And we both kind of, he's struggling with how to make it a public good. He's like, I think it should be a public good for X, Y, and Z reason. And I was like, I agree, but you know, how would you, what kind of deal, you know, are you be thinking of? And then I was like, you know, maybe something like 10 years. And he goes, yeah, actually I was thinking of like 10 year vesting for the founding team and everybody. Actually, I was like, I mean, it seems like the right scale of problem. You're not solving a little, like, you know, this is a little DeFi protocol that's going to optimize something as a public good based on Kelly criterion or what have you. It's actually like it's not an automated market maker. It's a it's an automated market maker for energy, right? Like this isn't some easy, you know, 18 month problem. So I think that that's a very important thing to just double down on is a lot of the garbage that was in the last cycle that were coming out of, I remember seeing these deals and I passed on almost all of them. No, I actually... I did pass on all of them. Anything that had less than like an 18 month vest for for the team. You're like, we're doing this. Who who said this was good? Hey man, mm-hmm. you know, like so and so named BC already signed on. Are you in or you're out? <laughs> right. So like one of the things that's nice to see at this point in the cycle is that you're have you a chance to do diligence again. <laughs> yeah, completely. There's that time to really build a relationship with the founders and also push back. And yeah, and then, then the idea that, oh, yeah, this VC said it was good or they wanted this. I mean, that's, again, just kind of an alarm signal like you should be running in terms of because ultimately, if you, and that's the kind of the, maybe the good thing. It's hard to kind of be too happy when ultimately a lot of people have really suffered as well. But there are some VCs have been shown up. And I guess I say kind of VCs, not a lot of them are hedge funds as well. Right. But they've shown that they've taken some very short term decisions and they're left holding the bag and their reputations to some extent have been hit and hopefully more of this will kind of come to light over time so actually founders again will hopefully raise their kind of uh raise their bar really and kind of raise their standards for who they take capital from and kind of how they're thinking about building what they're building as well i think that that kind of frame generally speaking of just being way more thoughtful is is just super important yeah i think that, i think that's great and i think that you've touched on an important thing that's a good spot for us to sort of shift gears which is the the founder values do they you actually think that they'd be willing to build you know a, a public good out of this does it is it reflected in the in the vesting and their cap table or token cap table formation all that one of the pieces you recently wrote i think it was recently within the last year i was catching up on stuff this earlier this week was a. Uh, the piece you wrote for Bankless on culture eats capital for breakfast. So it reminded me basically that uh, one of the very first things I did when I joined PrimeDAO was to help them sort of explicate their values, vision, and mission, right? Because, you know, they had a bunch of products, they had some funding, they had users. But if you, and I've been in the spot before as a product co founder, basically, where I was like, okay, how do we prioritize what we're making? All these ideas from customers sound great. We have a product out there. Which one should we do? 
right? And a lot of the time when you're still in that early phase where you have, have some customers, but you don't necessarily know that if we invest in the product and keep going in this direction, it's going to lead to a great outcome. You kind of have to go back internally and say, why are we doing this, right? Well, what is actually, let's combine our point of view and outlook and vision with what customers are telling us and kind of gauge where should we go. And so this seems to be something that you kind of hinted at strongly in your piece on uh, Culture's Capital for Breakfast. So the person like you, who's probably seeing maybe a couple hundred deals a year, what was the main problem you were trying to address? How did this kind of bubble up to the top for you? Yeah, it's interesting. It's probably towards the, because I wrote that actually at the towards the end of 2020, it kind of came out kind of early 2021. And it was this, I guess at the time I was seeing some of the, a lot of the greed bubbling up for having kind of all these kind of DeFi forks and mania. I mean, don't get me wrong, on a personal basis, some of it was fun. Who doesn't love uh, Algo uh, Autumn or whatever that was back then and post DeFi summer and all, all of this kind of craziness. But actually, a lot of the focus is on the tech. I think it's easy in this space to kind of, oh, this great new consensus model or this like cutting edge kind of interest rates model, all of this kind of stuff. But actually, as it's open source tech, it's really the community that's the moat. And and as you said, things can get pretty noisy. And as you start to give up quite a lot of control, how do you manage that? And I guess kind of when I think about kind of the importance of mission and values, I guess there's kind of two sides to it. There's the, and you alluded to it, it's that internally kind of ability to prioritize does this advance our mission? Is this contributing to our mission? If not, then it's not relevant. And then I guess thinking about, is this in line with our values, like our values of kind of transparency, et cetera. And if you're kind of living those, you're kind of setting the culture. And and I guess, I guess that, that's what relates to the second point of like having a really clear mission and vision. It kind of acts as your back signal. It's kind of like, hey, putting this up there, people can see it. Batman can come to it. He can come help out. But really, it's actually the community can come join. They can kind of join your band. They can see what you're up to. If they're excited, they'll kind of come support, hopefully contribute, kind of join your team. And that's super important if you are going to build a community that's sustainable and going to last. So kind of, I think it's really important as founders of these early teams to kind of create those early conditions where they think about what they stand for, how they're going to grow, and how they're going to bring others in to kind of help make that kind of vision a reality, I guess. Got it. And then like you mentioned this too, and you're hundred percent right. There's a, <laughs> there is such a drive in our space to basically, you know, look at the sexy new thing, right? The new consensus model, the multi-party computation, this, that, and the other. And honestly, I'm not trying to dip, not, not trying to take us, <laughs> take any, <laughs> I'm taking the knives out for MPC. I've invested in a number of these. They're really great, but you know, I'm mm-hmm. just, you know, throwing out these, to me, not being a mathematician buzzwords, right? I'm like, great, fantastic, <laughs> right? But as you said, though, the at the end of the day, if the, if the tech is open source, then there's no real moat, and the moat is users and community. And so mm. you, what, what matters to them? Well, they're humans, culture, values, their participation, their ownership, right? So I think this is something I throw out to everyone like you who holds this position, like me, is... How do things like culture values and you know the kind of the murky world of social relations, how do they get captured in blockchains? Do they? Yeah, no, really good question. I think ultimately on the blockchain layer, no, right? The blockchain layer is just, that's just recording the kind of the changes of state, that that's fine. But actually when you're building more complex applications on top of that, that's beyond just, so I think layer ones need to stay as neutral as possible. They're kind of, they're purveyors of, block space. They're kind of letting all of this great decentralized applications um, do their thing. Once you're building kind of protocols, whether it's kind of for storage, compute, et cetera, on top, or kind of in DeFi or kind of some of the greater economy stuff, ultimately you're building something more complex and it's going to change. So then as a result, how do you decide on those changes? How do you decide what to prioritize? You think about resource allocation. Do you decide to your successful application? Do you move to a new L1? Which L1? How do you think about that stuff? So I think it's really important for the team to be able to think about this correctly, but also then to get the community on board more easily. If you've kind of really set out more clearly and defined your values and what you stand for, when you make these decisions or bring people into them, they'll feel like they've had a say, they kind of understand where you're going and they'll be less disillusioned when kind of big changes happen. And like you kind of see this over time with, I think there is, I know when Compend decided to kind of uh, talk about building its new chain, there's a little bit of disillusionment there was Maker and the use of USDC, but actually you'd argue if the values were cl- more clear, at least the community would know where they're going and understand where it's coming from. But when this stuff is kind of left, I guess, undefined, maybe the core team or the core contributors say this stuff, maybe this stuff was said between them, but if it's not public, because we're not working in a room together anymore, we're all remote. 
So actually, I think if, as a result, it's more important than ever to really document your key thinking, your core guiding principles, where you're at. And that actually then, again, sets the conditions to enable your community to get behind you and also help you to grow as well. Yeah. And I, I don't mean to accuse you of dodging the question. I'm going to try to get yeah. it, at it in a different way. Yeah. <laughs> do you think that some of this, then when you do the work on culture, values, where we're going, you know, some of it might materialize as a roadmap, right? And then that gets put in front of engineers and product managers and it's built and it materializes in software, right? Maybe in like the more Web2 setting, it really depends on how you work. I guess, like coming back around to it, say you do this work, right? One of the things that I think is interesting is how does this work get reflected? It doesn't have to be reflected in the layer one blockchain, right? But might have to get reflected in stuff like governance, right? And governance of the protocol, governance of a DAO that manages the protocol. So how do you see this, you know, as an investor on the outside, and sometimes it's more on the inside as well. Like some of us are taking very hands-on roles and governance proposals, voting, all that. This sort of murky space of why we're here and what we're doing, do you think it then also materializes in this is how we vote? This is how we divvy up power? This is how these decisions are made? This is who gets to make a proposal? Those types of things. Do you think it actually comes down to that layer? Oh, yeah, 100%. Um... I mean, we're seeing this play out in Maker, but also across all of our, Maker's not a portfolio company, by the way. I'm just kind of saying it's quite an interesting one. Yes, I really do. And actually, I've been helping. I've had the kind of privilege of working with different of our portfolio companies, thinking about their kind of governance models, their movement to DAOs, whether it's kind of Pocket Network or NIM or some of these others. And actually, I think it's just really important to be thoughtful about your governance, what that stands for. If If you believe that things are going to change, governance is ultimately the system and processes that enable that change. And I think... I kind of often define good governance is basically creating social acceptance around that change. So really, that's going to be much easier if you have a good process of sharing information with your team. Um, and that kind of goes to your values of transparency, understanding where you're going and why you're going there. You want to scale. You want to do certain things. You want to all, all of these kind of clear things in your roadmap, right? And they can reflect your mission and vision. And so when things go to governance, people can get behind it a lot easier and they can actually almost, you'll have hopefully, at least theoretically, community members able to spot aspects of your mission and vision that maybe aren't fully been fulfilled that maybe they can take up and run with. And that's kind of some of the potential of, of DAOs and having a real community. So yes, I do think that's important. And actually, I'm kind of, I think it depends on the protocol in question, but I'm coming around to more and more that one of the biggest problems we have in decentralized governance is actually the lack of processes and the lack of kind of, I guess, defined features around who can make forum proposals, which forum proposals should be filtered out or taken uh, really seriously like how long should even basic stuff of like how long should the proposal be up for and and does this align with say our constitution because actually we're seeing more and more protocols actually have a constitution that say these are what we stand for and actually these are the principles that we abide by and actually if they don't abide by them this won't be passed so that actually helps you and helps prevent against governance attacks if you have the right kind of fail safe in place that's good yeah that's actually <laughs> I can definitely say that there are there's more than a handful of DAOs right now who are completely open to <laughs> governance attacks on those vectors because oddly enough, it's not the code. It's they haven't thought about what isn't isn't allowable, right, within their purview. That I mean, makes a ton of sense. I think one of the things you touched, one of the things I'm seeing out there, and I'm interested in your take on this, is the I'm seeing this quite a bit. It's probably for over the last 18 months or so, but uh, signaling proposals, right? So someone who comes in and says, we're thinking of doing X and here is what X is and everything that X entails. And this is your chance to get your word in before we push it to governance. I think this is one of the just, I think it's one of the things that almost every single DAO or protocol that has governance proposals should be doing just because it's my stance that, the outcome of most votes doesn't necessarily matter right now because of how low governance participation is so that your mm -hmm. vote on a proposal is already not doesn't seem very legitimate anyway because of how low the governance is but if you had people participate in shaping the proposal getting a word in actually saying this makes sense that doesn't it should be this way not that it begins to mirror more of the consensus process right so there's some misunderstanding around consensus process, right? People are like, oh, it just is it going to be 100 people in a room yelling at each other? No, it's not necessarily that. It's more that by hearing and seeing other points of view, you can shape the proposal into something entirely different that then actually gets a bunch of other people on board. It might look completely different from what it was before. And so when I'm actually talking to DAOs or portfolio companies on this front, I actually tell them, hey, 
you know, stop trying to pretend like you're going to be able to tell, you're going to be able to tell what every single intended and unintended consequence of this proposal is. Just put it up for a signaling proposal. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, that's a that's a great point. And yeah, I, I do think I think that's a kind of a great starting point. I guess I'm I'm quite wary of attaching myself to any kind of philosophical system too strongly, but I'm growing more and more attached to the ideas of sociocracy and the ideas of we're going to create these kind of non-hierarchical systems of how do we bring other people in. So that to that point of we want to build something, I think you want to again put out that kind of bat signal, share people what you're doing, but actually you should be ideally highlighting who is actually relevant in the community to talk to, get advice from. You know, maybe they have kind of uh, some expertise in whether it's economics or maybe the social political elements or the technical elements, and you're just getting process and feedback. And actually, that may actually include your broader community of non-just stakeholders, non-just community, like token holders, I guess. It could be additional protocols you support or your end users and all this kind of stuff. And you start this kind of advice process, and hopefully that comes out, and that's hopefully iterative. And then that would ultimately go to governance. But I think it's, I hate seeing, as you said, here is a fully fledged proposal that's been talked about in the back rooms and you've got yes. three days to vote. It's like, well, that's just not very collaborative. Or It's also like, it's a shame because it's also not leveraging the best of these communities. So I really think we need to think more deeply again on that kind of layer of organizational design, understanding who is relevant in the community, who kind of has some kind of reputation or context who should be canceled. And then, as you said, yeah, signal, bring people in, super important. And I, I guess I, we can go into token-weighted voting if you want, because that's my major bugbear, but that's more of an aside. Please, yeah, please tell us everything that you hate about token-weighted voting. Let's get into it, man. All right. I mean, I just think it's, well, one, it's just majorly plutocratic, but I think it's just hopelessly naive if we talk about token distribution. But again, one of the issues once you get to a certain kind of scale is, yeah, your tokens are largely distributed, but what's the incentive for newcomers to come and join and participate? So actually, unless they're able to build up reputation, then that reputation equates to maybe some maybe some economic upside. But actually, you know what? For many people, actually, it's the kind of softer social side that they care about more. So if you can kind of give them some reputation or context that says, hey, you get more of a say in this, that's super powerful and important and actually creates the kind of the conditions to enable these communities to be more sustainable. So I just think token mode of voting is just, it's kind of, bootstrap does to some point and help to monetize some governance tokens but i i don't think that's the future i don't think i don't, I don't think it can survive i think it's i think regulators will clamp down on it i also think there's a, a, a side point from just purely as an investor point there is a, one of the problems in the space and as many we don't have any kind of buffett style long-term investors so when you don't have any investor that's willing to buy publicly and hold for 10 plus years if these kind of tokens only attach governance to them, they're going to be traded and probably slowly kind of eat towards zero unless they have some real productive, useful elements to it. And so I think that's super important. And like probably cash flows attributing to them. So there's a whole bunch of other issues that opens up. But I think that's absolutely an, an absolute necessity. And on the governance point, I just think it's just kind of disheartening to see that there's a whale over there that doesn't add any yeah. value and they have all this say. So I think that just has yep. to be fixed. Yeah, I think it's a good point because, you know, us on this side of it, you know, we're, if we are early enough in a protocol, we're going to get a substantial amount of tokens. And then you've seen a number of uh, people try to ideate on this, at least within the last two years for how they manage. uh, It's not necessarily counterparty risk, but it's more like, uh, you know, the right term is something more like um, they realize that they might have competing incentives. Maybe it's more of a principal agent problem. Uh, Yeah, really, it's more of the principal agent problem surfacing Mm -hmm. up here, right? The example being something like... um, A16Z and Uniswap, right? So if you look at what they've done with their Uniswap allocations, they very publicly came out and said, here's this this token delegation program we've been working on. We've delegated our tokens to ostensibly trusted public institutions, this, that, and the other. But I'm very underwhelmed by that because if you look at the uh, trusted public institutions at the end of the day, Martin, I believe, made this point in one of our earlier podcasts when we were talking with Jason Prado from the Drivers Cooperative is that these public institutions are already ostensibly the main investors in private venture capital funds that then mm. take their funds, invest in you know walled garden. None of them are doing this on purpose, right? There's no bad guy here necessarily. It's just it is what it is, right? And so I think that you know these public institutions invest in private venture capital, build walled gardens, make returns for those institutions who are ostensibly, basically, in my opinion. Uh, they're hedge funds with libraries and gyms and students attached, right? And so, um, when, you, when you think of it that way, A16Z is saying, "Oh, we're going to we have to expand the circle of governance." It's like, well, 
going back to even an orthogonal thought you brought up earlier around sociocracy, right? Maybe there are mm. these types of governance models that a token cap table can map to before it's too late and before we are basically trying to wash our plutocracy in the we're trying to whitewash our plutocracy with the uh, delegating out to nonprofits and institutions right maybe that's maybe that's one way to go forward with this what do you think about that yeah i think there's a, a lot of good points in there i think i mean even going to the ideas of yeah sociocracy and these ideas of teal organizations largely speak largely speaking they think about having those with the i guess the best information or closest to the actual decision to enable them to make those decisions we're currently not doing that we're saying we're actually creating this artificial divide divide again if you have all these people doing the work and then you have this separate again essentially shareholder class we haven't really done anything new in terms of advancing the space if we're kind of just having digital corporations so i think that for one um is a major issue but then looking into kind of examples in the space where people are iterating on this idea so one of our portfolio companies colony they're like a, a, a kind of a low code DAO framework and they have this really powerful idea, which they have yet to institute, but hopefully should be in their next version. And that's the idea of reputation decay. So you can think about it of the, th the three of us on this call, we can decide to start something. And yeah, you could start with your DAO framework and ultimately you'll be all be making decisions. You have different kind of, they enable this kind of different context and hierarchy. And maybe we start with quite a high reputation, but maybe one of us leaves. But if we're no longer contributing and that's no longer being recognized, uh, contribution decays. And that's similar for investors. You can imagine that they actually start with a, a stake or a kind of a reputation. But if they're no longer contributing or doing certain things, that could be voting, it could be forum posts, could be supporting, could be other things that you could somehow measure. And again, again it's obviously difficult to attribute this stuff and anything that can be gamed will be gamed. But it is quite powerful. Idea. And actually, because the flip side, on it, actually, which is really interesting, which really draws me in, is because it works both ways and because it's actually technically non-dilutive to the token cap table. So you have someone new who joins, Maybe they have no capital, but they have a whole lot of smarts. They can start contributing and they can start earning reputation. And that's really interesting. So actually, I guess it's kind of, I think the more sophisticated model is going to somewhat differentiate the difference between economic upside and kind of governance, say. So I think it's partly about giving those with, um, I guess, clearly the best information, the ability to have the biggest say in that. But then there's also checks and balances. So things, if things are starting to go wrong at the lower levels, Obviously, ultimate token holders or kind of those holding the ultimate rights should have a say and should be able to call things up and maybe fire people. But I think there's a need in this space if we talk about empowerment and agency. We need to empower the workers and give them agency, but also give them upside. And I think the current kind of approach to tokens isn't really touching on that. It's kind of a hand wavy way of kind of getting past regulations, really. Yeah, I think you're 100% right on that. And I think you touched on a lot of interesting things. You know, in episode one, we, we chatted with Nathan Schneider, who's a uh, He's big in platform cooperatives. Uh, he's a professor out in the uni University of Colorado Boulder. And he basically had touched on something around the limits of extrinsic motivation, right? So like, yeah, you're going to have, you know, you have these regulations skirting token uh, fundraising instruments, right? And vehicles. And they, if you've seen, and I think this points at a number of ideas, but the one that really stands out to me is this idea that we and you have already have, have explicated on here, which is the idea of community as moat, right? Like the community is not only the moat, the community is basically the entire thing, right? Like if the community is <laughs> contributing to it, if the community is doing the work, they're demonstrating that, you know, you have to create an avenue for intrinsic motivation to actually materialize as well. And you're going to see the limits of extrinsic motivation materialize. And honestly, I could just probably point at every billion dollar protocol that has, that's just sitting there as a dead project, right? Those people join, they held, they did a few things, but at some point that your motivation extinguishes because we're not all extrinsically motivated, right? And so mm. having, designing a starting with maybe the principles of behavioral science even you could back out to what sort of instrument do we need to have to incentivize participation and and actually say you know once i become an owner of this thing how do i maintain my participation and without only just the old you know carrot and stick model because we already know the carrot and stick model thing itself doesn't really work either that's all extrinsic right i'm either going to punish you for not doing the thing you're supposed to do I'm going to better incentivize you with a reward if you do the thing. All right. And, and essentially, I feel that this is coming all the way back around. The reason why vision, values, and mission, and all that stuff matter, right? Because you're really covering the intrinsic side of things by saying, this is the reason we're all here. 
does this vibe with you if, if it does get in because you're going to have most of your needs met hopefully right maybe, maybe we're going to mm. no promises but we're going to get to somewhere where the pie expands and we're going to do it this way but if you don't do that then well i give you all the dead DeFi projects from DeFi 2020. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think extrinsic desires, and there's all these great studies about this, they're all obviously effective. People like to make money, but that isn't enough. Eventually, we get bored. I mean, kind of, and, and a lot of us are really much more powerfully motivated by intrinsic desires, the feeling that we're doing good, we're really helping people, we're advancing something that kind of connects to our, you know, deepest desires and passions. I think so enabling that and actually leveraging it is super important to create a sustainable community and that's kind of what we really need to do and that's kind of connected to as you're saying the kind of initial conditions and the kind of culture and values you create around this community because it's the intrinsic stuff that's going to keep people around absolutely and i think now this backs to the kind of the final topic that we'll hit on in the last few minutes here which is uh dermot why dows I'm just kidding. There's more to that question. I just wanted to throw it out there in its most general sense at first. But interestingly, I do kind of want to dig into that, right? You, you folks have invested in a lot of DAO tooling. I think you may have invested in a couple of DAOs themselves. So I think from an investor perspective, we asked Julia Lipton about this as well. Um, what do you see as the investment opportunity in DAOs? Yeah, great question. I think we've kind of touched upon it in different ways already. But first of all, in my opinion, if you don't get DAOs right, the whole space just won't really survive or thrive. It's not going to scale to the way we want because we need to get decentralized organization design and governance correctly if we want to ward off the regulators, as we kind of touched about. But two, if we're to prevent a whole litany of these kind of dead projects because people ultimately leave, they feel like they don't actually have a real voice. They don't have a real say. And so for devs, for me, are the most exciting new potential organizational form in terms of enabling kind of everyone to be part of that collective to kind of grow their reputation, have a say and contribute. Yeah, I guess kind of going back to the idea of the ownership economy, ultimately, ideally have a stake in that in a kind of uh, touching upon this kind of way that you feel like you had your voice is heard, but also in the kind of getting some economic upside in that. So yes, I think DAOs are fundamental to me. It's kind of what pulled me into the space right from the start. And I think it's unbelievably chaotic and messy right now. I think we're doing everything wrong, <laughs> I think. Uh, but it's really exciting because there's a lot of really smart people spending a lot of time trying to get this right. I think there's ideology that gets in the way of some of these things. I think we kind of uh, had some back and forth on this beforehand. And when people think of DAOs of decentralization, kind of the idea that some people think that you should have no processes in place, you kind of like just let it all kind of like hands off the wheel, kind of uh, let things happen. Yeah, and you, you see that in so many discords and DAOs, and then and then the founders make all the decisions ultimately because they have all the kind of the, the token stake. So it's kind of it's not yeah. it's kind of a fiction that this is a real decentralized organization. But going back to why DAOs, it's as I said, it's, it's I just feel it is the most important area to crack. And if we can we can really scale and build, uh, at least theoretically speaking, organizations and communities that can manage these kind of fundamental important resources on a collective scale that we just haven't really seen before. So I think that's just, the potential is there and it's so exciting. I think it kind of brings to life all of those things around new power values that I kind of talked about at the start, a kind of blockchains and crypto and DAOs provide that kind of technological substrate for that. But we need to get the softer stuff right. We need to kind of get the, the social layer correct. How do we kind of date each other? How do we interact? How do we coordinate? Yeah, that's a very good point. And I think uh, maybe to riff with you on this a little bit, I'm a, I'm a steward of Gnosis Guild, right? And Gnosis Guild has been mm. building some DAO tooling for a while. And, you know, they've done some great podcasts on it. You can get into the technical side of it out there on uh, things like the ZK podcast. They're, they joined Anna recently to go into a lot of detail on that. But what I found, if I decided to join them as a steward, which is a very, it's a very low time commitment for anyone's like, how many jobs does this guy have? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> basically... The point of it was to distill a number of DAO patterns of self-managing organizations and patterns for handling certain things as they come up. Honestly, you can think of it kind of in the, if the if you're familiar with it, Christopher Alexander's uh, a pattern language, right? So the famous architect who passed, I think earlier this year, who essentially 60, 50 years ago, built this pattern language for how humans would use you know, various forms of architecture to meet certain needs, right? And that ended up becoming a keystone for software patterns, right? A lot of software engineers and architects of the 80s and 90s drew inspiration from that to build reusable patterns. And then that became 
the basis, the intellectual basis for software development kits. And so coming back around to this, right, this is what Gnosis Guild is trying to build is basically patterns for treasury management, patterns for resolving conflict, patterns for you name it, right? And so you as a person who's kind of been in there helping folks out with this here and there, do you think that this problem on the social side is something that is primarily going to be solved with the these tools of psychology, these tools of business and organizational design? Is it going, or are they going to be solved with new tooling as well, or is it going to be both? Yeah, great question. I think it's both. I think it goes back to. I mean, I'm sound like a repeating self. But I think it is kind of culture and values all the way down. So I think we need to understand how to work together in these type of settings. And for sure, that kind of goes back to culture and values and the training, like from the kind of the way we talk to each other, how do we not get each other's backs up when we're in a different room and we all have avatars and so on and so forth? How do we make sure we're connecting across different cultures? How do we resolve conflict? This is all super important, but I think we can definitely codify some of this in software. And that kind of comes to the tooling point of view. There's a really interesting company. I don't know if we talked about it before called Murmur. And they're actually spun out of actually a consulting organization called The Ready that's been consulting with major organizations and nonprofits are on the run nice. around the thinking of non ready. Yeah. To, yeah. So this more. is kind of <laughs> this is kind of their productized piece of this to actually enable these kind of companies who are looking to kind of organize themselves and using a kind of non-hierarchical format. And essentially what they're kind of building on that kind of uh, thesis of kind of the kind of the nexus of contracts theory of the firm. Basically all every firm is consisting of these contracts and agreements. And so they have a way for basically organizations starting off to build up these agreements and come together and do that in a kind of a non-hierarchical fashion. So it's like the basic stuff of right now, when we kind of look to kind of build agreements in a document, I'll be like chasing you for comments, et cetera. So they have kind of software and tools to bring people in, check that the right people have been canceled, thought about. And the whole idea is actually not consensus-based. It's about once you believe it's safe to proceed, you can proceed. And that's kind of the document. You may not be 100% happy with it, but that's your maybe your new compensation policy. That's your new underwriting policy. Maybe that's your new mission document. And then you can go back to that over time. So that's kind of an interesting social piece that you can see in, and DAOs are actually their primary go-to-market at the moment. I think they're working with Orca. They're working with a bunch of interesting teams in terms of how to bring that into some new forms of DAOs. Because right now, I think you have a forum proposal and it's just chaotic. There's no reference to past proposals. There's no maybe reference to whether it's constitution or any mission or vision. But if you can refer people back to the right documents and give them a process and a way to collaborate, I think that's super important and super powerful. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I think it it gives them a nice integrated view of, you know, you go out to some person who just bought your token on Uniswap and you say, hey, you got to vote on this thing. (laughs) What kind of feedback do you expect to get? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's very good. I like. But that actually, that's interesting because I have made a an angel investment into a, an interesting team called Noble. That must they haven't been very loud about what they've been doing, but actually, one of the things they're actually doing to that point is being able to recognize different types of stakeholders actually as well, and to try and bring them in. So actually, they will be able to kind of zoom in and say, actually, you're a Uniswap V3 LP on X number of pools and different number of time. And maybe we should recognize you as a certain, having a certain amount of reputation. And maybe you actually have a greater say or stake. And so that's kind of an interesting, I guess, necessary piece to kind of advance kind of the governance and kind of this kind of advice process is to think about who your stakeholders are and how to recognize them and bring them in. That's very cool. I think I've only heard of really rudimentary stuff happening here, right? Like it's only, it's really going from the protocol or the DAO to other people. But this, I think, is interesting because they're looking at, you know, really trying to pull stuff in the other way. They're not just trying to push, right? Like EPNS is one of the ones that I'm, you know, kind of been seeing the space where it's like, hey, you can send a push notification to an Ethereum wallet. But my question mm-hmm. then was, what would you send? <laughs> what do you know? <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> what do you know about them? Well, you presumably, you know everything. You can go out there on the chain and look. But at the same time, like, what does that tell you? Well, you've pointed out some pretty cool cases here. Like, actually, we know that you provide liquidity to a number of chains maybe we know that you signed a snapshot vote here and there so we know you participate in things so we would like you as a person who participates to participate with us right that's interesting yeah exactly and potentially give them more of a say in that stake and then bring them in and so actually and even then actually maybe to get a differentiated form of access to certain other people in the team or the community so yeah they're kind of i'm not here to kind of chill them or talk with them it's interesting because their their mission is the 
idea of being Okta for DAOs, kind of like how do you kind of provide a kind of a B2B permissioning layer for kind of important tools like Discord and so on and so forth. But then once you understand who your stakeholders are, you can give them interesting access to channels to chat to each other, to support each other, to kind of maybe even have silly kind of leaderboards and all that kind of stuff. It's quite interesting. Very cool, man. Well, I think we're approaching about the end of everything we wanted to cover with you. And honestly, you hit some really interesting topics there at the end. And I'd like you to take the last few moments then. This is a, you know, it's not a Web3 podcast, but we have a lot of folks on here who represent that area. So it shouldn't be no surprise to you. We'd like you to chill with the last few minutes you have here. Tell us about where to find you online, follow your work and anything that uh, anything you'd really like to plug. Sure. Yeah, very kind. I mean, if you're interested, I guess, of course, as a kind of a founder in terms of uh, looking at kind of VCs who care about kind of building that new open internet, of course, kind of come check me out on EdenBlock.com. But otherwise, on Twitter, I'm around. I'm planning to post a lot more, particularly on some of the topics we've discussed. On, and that's my name is Dermish underscore Arudin. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time, Dermot. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on.